I'm Michael McMullen. And I'm John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. Welcome to this episode of This Week in Church History for June 7th through June 13th, 2020. Where this week we're going to celebrate the marriage of Martin Luther and Katharina von Bora, on, who were married on 13th of June, 1525. The notion of marriage and pastoral ministry had long been a contentious point in the church, and the Reformation sought to address some serious issues that they had uh, with prior Catholic Church teaching, and we're going to discuss that some today. And to do that, we're going to have a special guest this week is Dr. Stephen Ecker. He is the Assistant Professor of Church History and Reformation at our sister seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Ecker is a two-time graduate of the University of St. Andrews with his MLIT and his DPhil. He also holds an MDiv in Biblical Languages from Southeastern. He's published numerous articles on the Reformation and contributed to multiple books on the same subject. You can find him in all the usual social social media channels, along with the hashtag frequently of I Love the Reformation. Dr. Ecker, we are so glad to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, excited here to uh, discuss this important moment in history. Yeah, so why don't we start by even talking about Luther's wife. Uh, most of our listeners would be very familiar with Martin Luther and his life and mm-hmm. all of the things that uh, he accomplished, but uh, he also was married. Uh, who was his wife? What do we know about her? What kind of records even do we have of her? Yeah, so we know his his wife, uh, her name is Katie Mambora. Uh, or Katarina Bambora, more formally. Uh, she was um, a runaway nun, uh, in short. I mean, she had, her parents had sent her uh, to uh, to an order at the age of five. And so she spent all of her formative years of growth and development um, uh, in a nunnery, um, following sort of the, the traditional routines of, uh, of monasticism coming out of the late medieval period. Uh, we know that at some point in time, uh, she started to catch wind, uh, her and the other sisters at, at her convent, uh, of this these new radical ideas relating to um, to a, a, a German monk himself, uh, <laughs> Martin Luther, uh, and they begin to catch wind of these ideas, these discussions going on, uh, even start to read through some of his pamphlets and stuff like that, things that he's writing, uh, and so they begin to question many of them sort of the foundations of, um, of the church, of their, their, uh, their holy orders and these sorts of things. Uh, and so eventually uh, a number of these, these nuns uh, begin to appropriate these ideas to the point of wanting to be loosed from what they feel like has been a betrayal for much of their lives. Wow. Uh, and so um, she actually is, is able her and a number of her sisters uh, very famously are able to flee uh, by means of a, uh, a, a fishmonger who was moving fish around in a cart. Uh, and so a number of them sort of steal away uh, among the fish uh, and make their way to uh, to Wittenberg. And if, if you can imagine a bunch of runaway nuns arriving in Wittenberg, uh, which was a bustling university town at that time, the young gentlemen there were, were pretty excited about uh, about the prospects of the, the, the new arrivals. Yeah, that has a whole different uh, understanding of uh, finding your fish in the sea, I guess, uh, for single adults. That's there, exactly right. right. <laughs> Hi, Stephen. Um, I understand that um, 
Luther uh, kind of took it upon himself to um, assist in trying to find husbands for um, the nuns, but was seemingly unable to find one for Katie, um, maybe her age. Um, what is it that uh, you know prompted him to marry, and, and why did his friends think that was a really bad idea? Yeah, so... Um you know, they did find, and, and Martin Luther helped very famously to secure um, to secure husbands and marriages for, for these, these runaway nuns. Uh, Katie was sort of the last one. Um, and, and really, in some respects, it's not really the traditional uh, sort of love story. In fact, when, when Katie first came to, uh, to Wittenberg, she actually was enamored by a man named Jerome. Uh, and he was a student there uh, doing doing work in uh, in, in Wittenberg. Uh, and uh, but his his father was having none of this idea of him marrying uh, this this runaway nun. And so uh, so so that so that that falls apart. And and there's there's a lot of sort of historical uh, confusion as to what's really going on here. But we do know that at one point in time, Katie. Uh, sort of as a joke or something like this is really the only person that I would marry is Martin um, uh, or maybe one of his other friends uh, who he talks a lot about, uh, a man by the name of Almsdorf. And uh, so Luther really isn't interested uh, in being married all that much, but he is, uh, he is prodded to take a wife. Uh, in, and as we can talk about, I mean, this really is an important thing for a reformer to take a wife. Now, certainly he, this is not, so, so the, the anniversary here uh, relates to his marriage uh, in 1525, but this is not, he's not the first Protestant reformer to have actually married. We know, for instance, Ulrich Zwingli was married in 1522. Um, Matthias Zell, uh, who was in Strasbourg, was married in 1523. The very first person was Wilhelm Reublin uh, in the Swiss Confederation. So this is th- th- this has already happened. So there's nothing innovative here. What's different is Luther. Mm. And <laughs> Luther just being the, the, the magnetic personality, the dominant figure, um, and all of these other people still had not yet um, retained the, the, the moniker of heretic and outlaw of the empire mm. so so there there is something different here when when luther does this uh, uh in 1525 and so marriage of course as as we as protestants think about it is, is just sort of a, a norm that we somewhat take for granted but what they're doing is radical it's seditious it's outside of the bounds of what people were familiar with in the early modern period. So when they're thinking of doing this and, you know, again, Luther has tried to marry her off, uh, you know, in another way, it doesn't work out. How, how much did the Cranachs play in even maybe matchmaking and getting this uh, uh, kind of even in front of Luther? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's really important. Um, you know, this is really an, an untold part of Luther's story that's so important, which was his relationship with Lucas Cranach, the elder, uh, who was a craftsman, an artist, uh, and who really puts, puts pictorial representations on not only the Reformation, but the Bible through the, the, the lens of the Renaissance, uh, through, the, through Luther's famous German Bible. So, yeah, mm-hmm. they, they play an important role in this. Um, uh, 
Luther would be a, a, a godfather to the Cranach's uh, son. Uh, and in turn, later when, when Katie and Martin have children, uh, they would return this honor and be a, a godparent to to their children as well. Uh, in fact, this this is somewhat staggering. You think this very famous Protestant reformer getting married, this would be a really, really monumental moment. Lots of fanfare and things and so on of, of that variety. But the, the ceremony itself is actually only a handful of people. Mm. Um and so the Cronachs are there. Um, Johannes Bugenhagen, who was a, a, a pastor, really Luther's pastor uh, in, uh, in, in Wittenberg, uh, a man by the name of Johann uh, Abel, and then Justus Jonas, who we, Justus Jonas is important because he is the one who records uh, arguably one of Luther's famous statements, most famous statements on when he's on his deathbed, when he says that we are beggars, that's, that's who records that account mm. is, is Justus Jonas. Just a small handful of people, uh, but the critics are there. And of course, the marriage gift that they provide for them is these two very famous uh, oil paintings right. uh, from 1526. That is one of the very few depictions of uh, of Katie that we have, but also a very famous picture as well uh, of the reformer Martin Luther. So they're very instrumental in his life. They're uh, close affinity, not just in terms of their working relationship, again, because of Cronach's woodcuts, his paintings, his pictorial representation of the Reformation, but also deeply connected in terms of their, their lives socially. As someone who spent... Uh years doing single adult ministry uh, prior to serving in, in the academy. Um, they're an unusual story here between, uh, you know, Martin Luther and, and Katie. Did they ever really fall in love? Uh, that, you know, we would, we would think, uh, at least in terms of Americans, that we want to have romantic love and that kind of leads to marriage. And it's not exactly the way that the story plays out for them, but did they ever grow to love each other? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting here, not only in Luther's story, but some of these some of these other reformers. Um, you know, we we have in the 21st century sort of a glamorized uh, emotional attachment to love and these sorts of things. You know, remember in the early modern period, marriage is um, is as much about dealing with life uh, and surviving the difficulties of living in the 16th century, and so. Um, you know, for Katie here, she's a runaway nun. Uh, there is a need for support, for mm-hmm. finance, and so on. Uh, we find, for instance, uh, John Calvin, his wife uh, was a widow. Holden uh, Spingley, his wife was a widow. And so, and both of them, by the way, had children as well. Mm-hmm. So they brought children from an earlier marriage uh, into these relationships. And so, um, yes, there is a sense in which we know from the beginning that this this isn't really something, for instance, that Luther is necessarily seeking out. To a degree, it's somewhat thrust on him, but it really is to his benefit personally, professionally, in a number of ways. And I think from the beginning, Luther doesn't see that. But over time, um, you see the beauty of him growing to understand of the importance of love. And so when we do start to hear about these reformers talking about these, these, these wives of theirs, uh, for instance, Calvin doesn't talk hardly at all about his wife, Italy, uh, but 
at the end of his life, when she dies, he actually he actually deeply mourns in his writings uh, that he's really been bereft of the, the the greatest companion in life that he could have had, and, and a woman who who would have basically walked through the fires with him if that's what it would have meant. And, mm. uh, the same thing for Luther. I mean, Luther, you know, sort of in his writings begins to to affectionately re- refer to her as his dear Katie. Um, and so, again, you know, they, they express themselves in different ways, um, but they do grow to have these um, these mutual respects, these admirations, and of course, just the love that comes with it um, and along with them. I mean, for instance, Luther and Katie, I mean, they had, they had six children. So, I mean, there obviously was, uh, there, there was love, there was, um, you know, there were sexual norms involved in all of these sorts of things. So, uh, so yeah, just the, the shift from, uh, you know, sort of being thrust upon him to realizing what a gift marriage ultimately was, which is what the reformers had sort of begun to understand, and that was that's part of what what started this this question really of why clerical celibacy. Hmm. Uh, and and following on from that, really, um, you said about the marriage being uh, radical uh, as it really was. Um, you know, Christian men um, had previously been encouraged to, you know, don't marry, serve God, and and yet Luther and the other reformers um, become married and and have families. And um, mm-hmm. how true is it that you know Luther's marriage really becomes a kind of example of family devotion and worship? Uh, later on, say in, in the Puritans, who maybe bring it more to yeah. fruition. Yeah. So I think really two things are at play here, and this is very forward. One is looking back, and one is looking forward. Mm. So if you look back at what's going on here with with this marriage, um, remember these are reformers. They're they're changing what assumptions there are about the faith and so on. But marriage is one of those things that it really rose to the fore very early on in the 1520s. And here's why marriage is so important. As a, as a reform, it is one of the few early visible, tangible, substantive reforms that you can actually see and wrap your arms mm-hmm. around. So what I mean by that is, for instance, you can change the language of the gospel and move away from an understanding of sacramental theology towards justification by grace through faith alone. But what you're doing there is you're changing words, which tie to theological right. concept. But that's a somewhat nebulous thing. The same thing, too, with the Mass, right? You can abolish the right. Mass, but you're still observing the Lord's Supper. So the big difference here is is the way that you're talking about this, yeah. maybe the way that you're administrating it a little bit, but to have someone who has all of their lives, this class of people, the clergy, to have them doing something that they have never been witnessed being a part of marriage is a, it's a pictorial, visual, Mm. substantive reform. That's part of the reason why it's so shocking and so revolutionary uh, during this part of the early modern period. So that's, that's the first thing. So it really is this radical break and departure. It's also, of course, because marriage in Roman Catholicism is a, uh, is a is a sacrament of the church. This is a, an attack on the sacramental system. Right. 
because the there was the sacrament of um, of ordination and the sacrament of marriage, it actually this is breaking down the divide that had existed between the clergy and the mm. laity, which became one of the hallmark theological concepts of the Reformation. Right. So looking back, this is really a radical thing that mm. brings substantive change that the people can see. And of course, then projecting forward, that's what's so important with the recasting of new social norms and patterns for what marriage was to ultimately look like. Mm. Um, this this representation of uh, of a family, the representation of partnership, uh, even even in a sense, gospel partnership. I mean, I love so. For instance, Matthias Schutzel, Matthias uh, Zell, uh, and his wife Katerina Schutzel. Uh, their story is really fascinating because she really becomes uh, a voice in the Reformation. Uh, and becomes a partner, almost this mother figure of the Reformation uh, in Strasbourg. Of course, the same thing with Katie. Katie plays a massive role in the Reformation mm-hmm. uh, in Wittenberg for Luther, uh, not only ministering and caring for other people, but also her care for her husband actually looses him to do some of the work that he would otherwise not have been able to do, and to do it more freely. So, for instance, one of the interesting things is uh, Luther, uh, you know, was was he certainly had income through his uh, through his writings and also through his uh, through his teaching. Uh, but Katie also managed the house, and that yeah. meant more than just caring for the kids. I mean, she took care of the livestock, and she she took care of of the uh, uh, of gathering, you know food and, and dealing with the crops. And she also uh, very famously brewed beer in the basement of the, the Augustinian <laughs> cloister there for income. And this is actually very important because it freed Martin not to necessarily feel bound to fit within other people's boxes relating to his writings and his theology and stuff like that. It actually created a bit of a financial backstop for him right. so that he, for instance, could could really go about not necessarily giving up his publishing rights and these sorts of things, um, loosing him to have the bold at times crass voice that he has in the <laughs> in the 16th century. So when they're getting married and they're choosing to do this wedding with the backdrop of the Peasants' Revolt, was that insensitive? Was that just Martin Luther? Uh, what do we do with that? Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. It's not just the Peasants' Revolt that this is a, against the backdrop of. This is also 1524, 1525 is also when Luther is really embroiled in uh, this heated debate with Erasmus over the nature of the human will. So there's a lot that's going on here uh, in in Luther's life, uh, a lot that's going on in terms of the Reformation. We are we have yet to get to Augsburg, so he is he's an outlaw, mm. but whether Reformation is actually going to take root and be viable is still is still in play. Um, I think to the I mean I think it's a fascinating question. I think at the end of the day, um, it's sort of like what we what we would say to our kids uh, about them getting married or even about having children. 
when is the right time. You're never quite ready. There's never really <laughs> a perfect season for this. Uh, and so, so I think that's, that's really what you're seeing here. Um, what I do think, though, is so interesting, though, and you can look at this marker from 1525 uh, and then leading on up into 15 into the 1530s, you're really going to start to see slowly a little bit of a shift in Luther on this point. Uh, and I think that this, going back to, to the question about the marriage, you know, the marriage norms and the family norms, this, they're really a different Luther emerges in the 1530s and 1540s. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, um, so Luther's early writings, for instance, they're extremely apocalyptic. They're, um, they're drawing, I mean, Luther really believes he's living in the last days, right? So for him to take a wife and to start a family as an older man, remember, he's 42 when he gets married, she's 26. So there is an age gap here. And, and so he knows, even at 42, he's only got so many years left right. uh, of life and ministry. Um, and at the same time, there's this young you know, this young nun start having children with. So this is, there's a bit of a shift in him theologically and practically that maybe, maybe the, you know, the day of the Lord isn't quite as nigh as I thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, so what you see is you start to see some of that apocalyptic fervor uh, begin to, to, to settle or get tamped down in Luther. I think you also see a little bit of the softening of Luther in certain areas as well. Now, we do know, of course, he does get extremely harsh later on in life, especially relating to figures like the Turks and the Jews and so on. Um, that also could tie in specifically with that apocalyptic shift as well, I think. But it does soften Luther uh, in certain other areas and gives him what I would just call sort of an experiential lived theology. So, for instance, one of his children, his daughter Elizabeth, she dies uh, in, in, in infancy uh, around the age of one. Uh, and you can imagine, for anybody who's gone through that, that is, that's a life-transforming thing that leaves scars, but it also leaves an opportunity for ministry. And mm-hmm. so, for instance, we, we know Luther, for all these amazing writings, theologically, his pamphlets and his Bible and stuff like that. One of my absolute favorite things he wrote was in 1542. It was It's a small little tract called Consolation for Women Who Have Had a Miscarriage. Uh, and so here's Luther, the reformer, this crass, bold, you know, loud reformer, and he's talking about um, a topic that's deeply personal, very painful, and he's ministering really to women. And I think you can look in that in that in that small work, uh, which you can find online very easily. And you can see he's ministering out of his own experience, out of his own, uh, you know, rea- the reality of wrestling with losing a child, the guilt associated with that, the questions as you're beginning to ask God certain questions about who he is and his goodness and so on. Mm. And so what we see out of that is this really soft Luther that emerges where, where he encourages these women to say, look, this is not, this is not God being angry at you. Um, and even takes a very uh, interesting position on uh, the, the, the viability of, of these children. I mean, he's talking about for those who had a miscarriage, these children wouldn't have been baptized at the time. So even mm. with it, 
falling outside of his baptismal theology. He even says, like, this is, you know, God will look at your prayers and what he knows would have been your desire for that child's baptism, and we can rest in that. Mm-hmm. So it's really this is this softer side of Luther uh, that that you see emerge here. And so there really is there really is a different Luther that we see at the end of his life. There's a lot going on, but I think this is just one of those things, one of those contours of reshaping who he is in the last, let's say, 15 years of his life. That's really good. And one of the questions that we like to ask our guests uh, is, is to play the what-if game. Um, we know that's not necessarily the best historical question, but but sometimes it helps us tied together some contextualities we hadn't we maybe hadn't ever thought of. Uh, what if Luther had never gotten married? Uh, what what would you say uh, to a question like that? What what if Luther had just remained uh, a celibate monk working in Wittenberg? Yeah, well, I think a couple of things. I think number one, I think that some of the things that we have from him. Uh, and some of the important work that we had coming at in the in the, fifth, the late 1520s, the early 1530s, and so on, I think it wouldn't have happened because of the busyness of life. I mean, again, if you've never been to the to the to the Augustinian monastery in Wittenberg, it is a voluminous building. Yes, um, that needed someone to tend to those affairs. Luther was very famously terrible with taking care of his own money. Katie came in. And brought brought order and stability to the family home and finances. Um, you can just imagine, and those of those of your listeners who are bachelors, I mean, they or remember what bachelors' life was. You remember what what eating was like and those sorts of things. So this brings balance to Luther's life. Again, it frees him from some of these other things that would have that would have really demanded his time. Again, in the early modern period, when you can't just you know swing by the local fast food restaurant to pick up some food. Um, and so, so I think it really loosens, looses him for the work. Mm. Um, and so I think we would have missed out on some of that. And again, I think, mm. I think we would have missed out on the softer side of Luther. For those of us who, who have been married, for those of us who have had children, we can all attest to the fact that it changes us. Yes. Um, it gives us ways of thinking about things differently uh, it gives us illustrations uh, in our teaching and our preaching that otherwise weren't there uh, previously. So, so I think all of these sorts of things are really what we would have missed out on um, with Luther, and I think as well just a little bit of the relatability, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons why we like Luther is because we can relate to him. We all deal with on some way, you know, some level you know, anger and frustrations. We can all tend to be people who lash out. We can also tend to be people who who love well, who care well for others and so on. And so I think that we get we get a more relational side of this figure other than had he just been this monk turned you know, reformed bachelor sort of sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So another thing that we like to ask, uh, Dr. Ecker, is since Midwestern really is is for the church, how should we understand the connection of marriage in the reformers' minds relating to church health? Yeah, I think that I think that what what they're redoing here is they're recasting um, the way in which uh, the family situates. Uh, again, this is a breakdown of uh, this idea of sacramental theology, uh, and so. So things like marriage, they aren't just they aren't just a sacrament. 
um, they really are, you know, going back to the, 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 the term from the New Testament, they really are a mystery mm. that is a gift given. Uh, and so I, I think we look at these things, and I think with the Reformers, they remind us uh, of the importance of marriage to the the healthy uh, the healthy culture that we we have in our local churches, uh, and as well, I think this is one of the things that they really help us to understand because their their lives were very tumultuous. They were very busy, and yet this is a stabilizing force in in their lives. Mm. Um, so, for instance, you've got someone um, uh, you, you've got someone like Holdridge Zwingli or Calvin. They have blended families, right? Mm. I mean, they have wives who have been. Uh, who have been, uh, you know, widowed that come in. And even Calvin in his writings, he writes about this. His wife, Italia, she was previously an Anabaptist, uh, a wife of an Anabaptist, mm. which, of course, in the 16th century was massively scandalous. And so even that, he writes in a painful sense in which that first marriage for him wasn't really a valid marriage because it was outside of of the, the, the traditional orders uh, of marriage in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the early modern period. And so he's just taking in the baggage. You've got blended families. You've got, you've got loss of life with children, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think it just shows you that, look, life is messy, ministry is hard, and it's done amid the messiness of, of life. Um, and yet, out of that, something, something very beautiful can emerge from the brokenness, from the ash, from the sin and the death, and all of that. Uh, and so, I think in that sense, these these women, uh, these families, these marriages really serve to remind us that what we're undertaking now is not all that different from what they were doing then. Uh, and these are the these are the couples that help to found the Protestant tradition who helped to establish the reform tradition or the Lutheran tradition or just Protestantism in general. And so mm-hmm. um, it's really, it's really that broken vessel that gets pieced back together. It still has the scars. It still bears the marks of, you know, of being broken. Uh, and yet it's a beautiful working vessel ultimately for God's purposes and for the expansion of his kingdom. Dr. Ecker, thank you for helping us reflect on that. And thank you so much for joining with us for this episode of This Week in Church History. For our listeners, uh, we would strongly encourage you to find a book on Luther and settle in and read. Just discover more about uh, his life, his marriage, uh, the way that God uh, brought he and Katie together to be able to serve that region and that area. Uh, you can always find plenty of resources at the Sword and Trial Bookstore on the campus of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and Spurgeon College. We'd love to welcome you here on campus. And if you can't get here, then you can also find books and order those online through our website as well. So listeners, thanks for joining us on this episode. We look forward to seeing you next week.